You are listening to TWN Champions, episode 33. Champions, arise! Welcome to the Champions Countdown Podcast, where we summon heroes from across space and time to populate our intergalactic museum, or something like that. This is episode number 33. I'm Will, and she was the world's biggest star in March 1978. You know her by her infectious catchphrase. It's Rebecca! Rudy Doodles, America! I thought it was going to be folksy because it was in the 70s. <laughs> well, I was tr- like when you said the 70s, I was trying to think of something that sounded like it was impacted by cocaine. Oh, OK. Yeah, yeah. Because we're getting into the 80s a little bit, too. So, yeah. So. Well, you know, they, they, there's like lots of disco. They cocaine. didn't know better then. <laughs> they didn't, which is really too bad. I No, I'm not going to advocate for drug use. I would just say I wish <laughs> drugs were were just helpful and not harmful. I love the way that, <laughs> y- you know, imagine you're a celebrity and you're prepped by your PR person and like just avoid controversial topics and you lasted three seconds <laughs> before like, you got into you some crazy stuff. Like, what is happening? We can't, she, you cannot control her. This is just coming from someone who is tired from sinuses and allergy problems all the time. And the medicine that you take mostly makes you sleepy. And I just really wish that we had something that could maybe pet me up a little bit in a safe way. <laughs> well, yeah, you can take one Sudafed yeah. and then you can have one nasal spray. And that's all you get. Yeah, I think so. And we've already done enough enough coffee this morning. That's but, true. But allergy season's pretty rough. It, it it comes at one point in the year and goes away for a little bit, and then comes back for a little bit and then goes away, but it just wipes us out. Yeah, this is the growing part of the year. I think so. Stuff is growing. The does my lawnmower still work part of the year. Should have let the gas out of the lawnmower last season, but didn't. The, the problem with that is you never know that your last mow is your last mow. Because yeah. you're like, I might have to do this again next week. I'm not going to get rid of all my gas like an idiot. And also, where do you put it? Well, I'm going to just run it out, just run it wild, just take my lawnmower up and down the street a few times, go mow some other people's grass until it's out of gas forever. Can't do it. All right, Rebecca, what are we actually talking about today? On today's show, we're counting down our personal favorite takes on the ephemeral archetype. Okay. I have four. Will has four. It's a top eight. Okay, so this is one of those topics that's a little weird to describe, but we were pretty pleased with it when we thought of it, and 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 we're thinking you could even do several of these. But maybe talk, maybe would you talk to us about what this means? Okay, when when we use the term ephemera in a historical sense, we're referring to tangible things that were intended to have a one-time use and then be discarded. So if you're a historian who likes to look at ephemera you're looking at things like receipts 
tickets, programs, trade catalogs, uh-huh. like stuff like that. That stuff wasn't intended to be archived or preserved for historical significance because it's just like a uh, here's a seed catalog, you okay. know. You see all the pansies you could dream of in 1931. The waters get muddied even more when you consider the use of the items because um, a birthday card or like a program from a school play, these would both be considered ephemera, even if the user cherished them and held on to them for a long time. Okay, so even if it's not intended to preserve or whatever, it's still possible for ephemera to have a long life and res- yeah. resonate with people. It's kind of like that's the weird irony of it I and guess, i think that's why we we were interested in this topic because you know despite their intention or there not being much ambition for it sometimes it does have a resonance with us and it's interesting for that reason yeah it's, it, it does sort of sit at this weird crossroads for us um and for a historian they would be considered a very good primary source because they can reveal a lot about life at that time and they weren't intending to uh-huh. you know which is which makes them like very good and interesting sources if we're yeah. talking about tangible things, right? So we've known about the fleeting nature of existence for, I don't know, a little while now. And so over the past couple of hundred years, especially, we've been very, very serious as a as humankind. Um, about preserving and archiving our culture. And we've even like made the le- leap now to like preserve and archive like internet culture because uh-huh. you know you think of archive.org and what they do and they've got like the wayback machine and all and all these bots that crawl and crawl um, and you can look up you know basically snapshots of the internet at any given time. And for that reason it's really even hard to say like what we consider to be ephemera. I feel like we're using that word a little bit differently now. Um, and then, so this is my, this was my theory. Uh-huh. Okay. There's a record of pretty much everything in the world. But we have a working collective memory of stuff. And I think it's more or less generational. And this working collective memory, it's just of the stuff that we remember as interesting or significant. And when you think of ephemera now, it's not like what didn't get preserved by history, but it's more like what? do we not really remember or think about? Like, what didn't get rolled into our, our collective memories? Or, or, yeah, or even get rolled into the next generation. Yeah, like, what didn't kind of, like, make the cut as uh-huh. we were going on? Or, like, what don't we remember so much? Or what don't we remember so fondly? Or what do we remember in a very hazy way, whereas other things we remember incredibly fondly with great love? Uh-huh. I also feel like we rehearsed this archive among ourselves all the time. Like, do you remember having 80s nostalgia in the 90s? Because I do. Yeah, definitely. Like, yeah. From, the ver- from the very beginning, like, it's, it's just, it's something that as, as you start growing up, you always have this collective sort of uh, nostalgia that you rehearse and rehearse and that you think about. Like, I remember in the 90s and be like, hey, remember DuckTales? Woo! Do-do-do-do-do. Like, like. It was six years ago when you were six years old. You know what I mean? Like, it was not that long ago. Mm-hmm. But, like, from the beginning, we've been kind of, like, rolling these big Katamari balls of, <laughs> of, of memories and um, such. Yeah, it's interesting what falls off and what doesn't. Yeah, and some stuff falls off, I guess. And that's, that's a really roundabout way of doing it. But that's how I'm sort of thinking about it. Like, what are the stuff that fell off of our Katamari ball of, of memory? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And, and it makes me think about why uh, stuff uh, stays in the ball and, and some stuff falls out. And I don't know if we'll be able to make an exact formula, but 
One thing I did look at that I thought was interesting, I was trying to think about, well, are the different types of ephemera? And I thought it was actually easier to think about how something becomes ephemeral by looking at something that doesn't. So I was looking up, it was an example of something somebody created out of nothing with the intention of saying, we're going to make something stick. And I found a pretty good example uh, in Sonic the Hedgehog. Um, because in 1990, the Sega video game company hired two guys to create a mascot to compete with Mario. Obviously, this is Sonic. So this is Naoto Ashima and Hirakazu Yasuhara. And this is a really tall order. It it's really is. It really is. I and mean, it is... was absolute brand dominance down to cereals and sounds. It was just a whole world that was the brand. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm, this is, I'm sure, the kind of assignment gets handed to people, especially in marketing and, you know, especially in kids' products or whatever. Yes. But, like, yeah, no, they were just like, like, you, <laughs> Make something better than Mario. Exactly. That's a really that's a really good point for kids too, because they're not going to meet you halfway with any patience. Either it clicks or it doesn't. Um, and so Ashima described the orders that he got to the Polygon website, and he said, "Sega said we definitely want to see something like an old guy with a mustache. We also want to see something spiky, and we also want to see a dog-like character." That was their marketing <laughs> Look, department. We've done the research. We yeah. want to see an old People mustache love dog this. with points. Exactly. Give us this. So uh, these two guys go to New York and just start surveying people on the street because they want this to really work in America. And so Ashima said the hedgehog was the most popular concept um, when they were talking about these character types with people. People pointed at it and liked it. The second was Eggman, who we know became Dr. Robotnik. Third was the dog, which is kind of what you wouldn't think. Um, and he says, this was kind of pleasantly surprising. I was asking myself, I wonder why it is. The conclusion to me was that by a lot of people choosing the hedgehog, it will transcend race, gender, and different types of people. Okay. So, and, yeah, okay. All right. Yeah. And, um, and so he was saying, you know, this, this was kind of good news because the real gold mine is a character that kids could draw that is instinctively familiar, maybe affectionate. It's cool. And they, they sort of had these, these three, um, guideposts. They wanted to be cool, um, a challenger character and have a history. And this was the interesting part to me. Um, he was suspecting that this sort of stuck around because they anchored it in something very American and historic. So it wasn't just created completely whole cloth from nothing. So if you remember Sonic, there's all this weird imagery about like um, flight wings, like pilot wings off the logo and stuff. Yeah. And so he um, found this old um, World War One pilot, maybe. Um, there's an American pilot who they called Hedgehog because when he'd go flying, he'd come back and his hair would be all spiky. And he sort of put those together and he sort of worked in this sort of like old fighter pilot motif with Sonic, who he loved speed and he had the hedgehog hair. And it just sort of tugged on something historic there. But then they also mixed it with something current, which was the environmentalism we'd been talking about. If you remember, you're saving woodland creatures and all the zones and stuff. And it's the mix of the current and the old maybe that made it stick. And, so, <laughs> yeah, I remember saving the planet when you <laughs> hop on a robotic thing and chicken comes yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, they were very small pixels, but we knew they were they were something. Uh, we knew we were saving the Earth, okay? 
So I, so I, I, I guess the thing to take away uh, from it is um, if something's uh, ephemeral, maybe they um, are not capturing either something important now or have a foot in history. And you just need to be able to hold on to have a strong purchase in some way. And there's hmm. like a balancing act between them, maybe. Okay, maybe so. Maybe maybe that is. Maybe there needs to be some sort of generational bridge. Yeah. We'll, we'll keep that in mind. Yeah. Okay. Because I have no theories to my picks. My picks are just weird. They're just weird things I thought of. <laughs> I think that's what people want to hear. <laughs> All right, Rebecca, what is your first pick that I may remember? Number eight. It's 1988, and you've just been given a doll for your birthday. Ooh. <laughs> I know you're welcome. She was a blonde, living it up in the California sun, riding in a convertible with her boyfriend. And no, it was not Barbie. And no, Grandma did not get you a Barbie. This is Maxie. She's just as good as Barbie. Spell Maxie. M-A-X-I-E. Okay. Was it short for something? We'll never know. <laughs> These were dolls in a cartoon series um, pioneered by Hasbro and they were intended to steal the shine off Barbie in the late 80s who you know this is like Barbie was like to girl culture what Mario was to everyone mm-hmm. right I mean like Barbie was un- unstoppable untoppable okay you said it was 88 so I'm trying to think they would have been having some success with Transformers already and they'd be like what if Maxie transformed? It's <laughs> like, no, this is for girls. For girls. <laughs> she transforms into a convertible. <laughs> Don't take her top down. <laughs> Get in trouble with the network sensors. Um, so this the full run of the show was 32 episodes. Actually came out before the dolls. So oh. that was it aired in 87 and then it went on to air in syndication. I don't remember this at all. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about my personal memories of Maxie. Um, and the toy line ran from 1988 to 1990. What's Maxie doing now? She's cheerleading. Go, Maxie! Maxie cheerleader, Maxie! Looking beautiful, Maxie! So they had had a little bit of success, even though they always talked about it like it was a failure, but they, they had some success with Jim and the Holograms, because that was them also. Okay. The dolls never took off like they wanted to because they were scaled wrong for the Barbie universe, could not play. We've oh. discussed this before. Oh, what an interesting um, business observation, too, because you could leverage the scale of the Barbie brand by just making your stuff interact with them. You, yeah. know, you almost wonder if there was a law against that because you it's like you would already have out there all the accessories that Maxie needs that they would have already bought. And uh, that's interesting. Yeah, she, um, from the commercials and stuff that I remember, she seemed to be scaled a whole lot more like Barbie, although never having held one in my hands, I could not tell you okay. for sure. But like, 
it's it's so weird too. Well, we'll talk about that more. But like with Jim and the Holograms, they had a toy line that didn't do well and a cartoon that was a mega classic, amazing work of art, mm-hmm. right? Um, and Jim and the Holograms lives on in our collective Katamari ball, like our, our co- collective memory. But Maxi has completely fallen out. And I think Hasbro was like, well, let's try this again with a girl toy. But instead of like doing a good story about a rock band and a hologram that helps them, Let's just make it a dumb, regular teenager who lives in California. So this is from Wikipedia. The title character, Maxie, is a straight-A student, cheerleader, and surfer girl who attends Surfside High School in California. In addition to her life as a typical teenager, she routinely finds adventure solving crimes and investigating mysteries as host of her own TV show. Pick a lane. There is... I know! (laughs) She can't be doing any one of these well. I mean, forget what Whitney Houston's saying. Maxie was every woman. Okay, <laughs> apparently. Like, just like every, every thing you could think of. Like, let's let her be this. And also, she's beautiful. And and when they throw in the crime solving, that's the just crime solving like, is pretty funny. That is ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Okay. Did she come? Do you remember? Did she have any detective accessories? No, because I do remember the toys being marketed. And they marketed, the, like, the toys were so dumb too because like here's Maxie she's a doll whatever the one that I remember is them marketing ooh ooh hula hoop Maxie okay so it was like here's Maxie with a hula hoop this is different from just Maxie I mean that's that's so funny to tell the toy makers like okay you're telling me she solves crimes but you gave me a hula hoop exactly where what and where the detective costume would have made it more interesting but they're like no she's got a hula hoop so she can have fun in the California sun what the fat hell was going yeah, on yeah where's her polaroid camera and her stun gun <laughs> seriously or her tv anchor microphone maybe she yeah. had that oh i, I forgot about that i know one of many things that maxie did what's maxie doing now she's cheerleading so i fast forwarded through an episode because i never watched the show i mean i don't remember watching the show i remember it came on uh-huh. during the saturday morning block because it came on like after Wee's Playhouse, which was a show that I did enjoy. <laughs> but um, I fast forwarded through an episode and I saw that there was a plot about one of the teenage friends stealing merchandise from her job at the mall. And then also at the same time, Maxie was practicing ventriloquism for some oh reason. Oh my God. And then some her teenage friends were throwing pizzas out of a convertible. So that was what the show was like. So it's just all over the place. And the animation and design, however, were a lot better than you'd think that they would have been. It was the same way that they drew all those really, really beautiful costumes and set pieces for Gem and the Holograms. Uh-huh. Like, they looked very, like, visually appealing for girls. They tried to do the same thing with Maxie because they have all these, like, Malibu mansions and interior design looks. And Maxie had all these different outfits. But... The show was just a mess, and it didn't stick, and it didn't take off, and little girls did not want Maxie, and they could tell she was a poor man's Barbie at best. <laughs> so, um, um, and then also, it's very much worth mentioning that they didn't have somebody like Christy Marks writing, writing for them, and so the cartoon was just not good. Yeah, that makes sense. And I was the prime Maxie demographic. A lot of us don't remember Maxie because it was garbage, but then like... Maxie lasted just as long as Jam and the Holograms did, and I love that show to this day. And Maxie, I'm like, take a hike, Maxie. <laughs> when 
we were talking earlier about Sonic the Hedgehog and it's like, what makes something stick and yeah. what doesn't? These toy companies never had a clue. They never have a clue. Everyone is very confident until reality hits. This is from an Associated Press article dated in 1988, which I love that they have their archives online, by the way. She's right on target with our projections for the first year. We certainly look forward to Maxie to be around for a long time, said Wayne Charnas, Hasbro's Associate Vice President of Public Relations and Promotions. (laughs) So introduced in March of that year, Maxie got the benefit of a huge promotional campaign that consumed 70% of Hasbro's marketing budget for 1988. And included in the hoopla was the live model Brooke Thies of Palos Verdes, California, an actress who appears on the new ABC sitcom, Just the Ten of Us. This was from the article. They hired a live girl to be Maxie, and they, like, put her in the commercials and stuff like that, and it was very confusing. But they went all in on Maxie, and it didn't stick with us. Making waves, Maxie, and looking smart, Maxie, eats so separately. Number seven. A brilliant scientist with a dream. I want to walk again. But what he becomes will defy imagination. What are you, man? From the writer of Batman and the director of Darkman. Put all your money and jewels in the bag. You won't win. Comes a new breed of superhero. Before Spider-Man, before Ant-Man, before Ladybug. There was another insect hero who kept his city safe. This is the mechanically augmented neurotransmitter interception system, also known as Mantis. And there's a good chance you don't remember him. Uh, no. <laughs> if no. you do remember, you'll be very excited. This was a superhero created out of nothing with no history that I could find in 1994, which probably came to be due to the popularity of Batman Returns, and also the primetime Flash TV series. Oh, because you could have told me this was from, like, any decade. I would have been equally clueless. It's that weird era um, where uh, the look of the superheroes around that time had special effects that looked like um, whenever they started shooting phasers on Star Trek, like those kind of, like, sparky explosions and stuff. And they all had those puffy foam muscles around that time, kind of like uh, kids' Halloween costumes now. Mm-hmm. That's another thing. Kids' Halloween costumes now are as good as our legit superheroes from the mid-90s. So I it's just want true. kids to know to appreciate that. And they're better than what Adam West had to deal with <laughs> in the 66 Batman That is right. Series. That is correct. That is just clothes he was wearing. <laughs> Just an outfit. <laughs> Batman outfit. So I'll give you the rundown of the uh, character, and then we can talk about why it was kind of special, but maybe forgotten. The premise is that Mantis is a wealthy black scientist who is shot in the spine by a police officer during <gasps> a riot while he was trying to rescue a child. So this is like a social commentary. Mm-hmm. like a This is like a... a Politically aware comic and yeah, everything. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you more about that. So, so what's the tie-in between that and a mantis? That's what I'll, I want. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. I'll get <laughs> well, to I'm, it. I'm ready to hear it. Okay, so this at this um, incident leaves him paralyzed from the waist down. And then he loses a lawsuit against the police department after discovering a conspiracy against the black community. And so he commits all his resources to developing this harness that will enable him not just to walk, but to perform feats of superhuman strength, which he will use to set wrongs in his city. Plus it has gadgets and stuff. 
And um, it's basically... What, what, what a beautiful, devastating metaphor that you have to become superhuman in order to fight the <laughs> endemic corruption well, in our society. Well, I think you hit exactly on it because when I was reading this... Somebody called Jordan Peele. Does he know about this? <laughs> well, when I was reading about this, it was so clear that this is basically, what if Batman were a black man? Yeah. Is exactly what this was and because Bruce Wayne's about, just like boo hoo. My parents got shot in front of me. It's like boo hoo. The whole nation is crying. Like give me exactly. What? And he and he has particular challenges. That I'm angry that Bruce I never Wayne knew wouldn't about Mantis. Who are the writers? Okay, so it had some big names behind it. Okay. The, the two hour pilot was developed by Sam Raimi, you know, who developed the great Spider Man okay. movies, and Sam Hamm, who wrote the first two Batman films. Okay, actually. Uh, and it was produced, the TV show was produced by the guys who made the Flash series. It starred Carl Lumbly, who was the head chef in the movie Dr. Sleep that we saw recently, oh, actually. Okay. <laughs> so, like we are getting at, it's a pretty good premise, and he's a great hero. He looks kind of like um, Ant-Man. He has a um, helmet-like Ant-Man. And then his costume was kind of like Lord Zed from Power Rangers, which sounds like a dig, but Lord Zed's costume was pretty cool. And he had a flying car like Batman Beyond. Um, and the dialogue was pretty cool. Uh, the pilot movie was really well uh, received. But here's some trivia that might let you know about uh, what they had to contend with with this show. So, like you were just saying, racism was a big part of the movie po- uh, pilot. It was pretty dark. But Fox executives thought it was too grim and realistic. And so they made them pivot to more fantastical premises. What if he gets some magical breakdancing? Shoes. Uh, um, well, they did end up fighting invisible dinosaurs and stuff, so you're not too far off. And then also the writers' offices were demolished during production to make room for the Jurassic Park ride. So that is the kind of thing that they are dealing oh with. Oh, my God. I remember seeing ads for this show at the time when it came out. I didn't watch it. Um, at, at, I guess I was busy with other kids' stuff, but I remember one boy my age uh, who loved Mantis. That was his thing. He could not get enough of it. And one time, when we went on a Boy Scout scouting trip, this is when this kind of technology was not common, but he took his dad's portable TV and snuck it into his tent because Larry was not going to miss his Mantis. And we found out that he had it. His memories of Mantis are much more cherished than his memories of Boy Scouts. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. So he's sitting on that cot watching it. We were so jealous. Like, Mr. GM Larry's in there watching Mantis. And so (laughs) it was was wrong of us. But so here's to Mantis. He could have he could have used some help from comic books or action figures, but he lives on in our memory because he was a pretty good superhero. Maybe it's time to resurrect him. Number six. Look at that. Everybody out there on skates having a fine time except us. Maybe if we put all of our money together, we could buy ice skates. Oh, great. Exactly seven cents and one washer. And you can't buy ice skates for seven cents. In 1961, the brand new FCC chairman, Newton Minow, addressed the National Association of Broadcasters in what would become one of the most famous all-time speeches about the medium of television. He said, when television is good, nothing, not the theater, not the magazines or newspaper, nothing is better. But when television is bad, nothing is worse. 
I invite each of you to sit down in front of your television set when your station goes on the air and stay there for a day without a book, without a magazine, without a newspaper, (laughs) without a profit and loss sheet or a rating book to distract you. Keep your eyes glued to that set until the station signs off. I can assure you that what you will observe is a vast wasteland. What? He continues. Okay. You will see a procession of game shows, formula comedies about totally unbelievable families, blood and thunder, mayhem, violence, sadism, murder, western bad men, western good men, private eyes, gangsters, more violence in cartoons, and endlessly commercials. Many screaming, cajoling, and offending. And most of all, boredom. I was uh, with him until he got about halfway through his list, and I was like, it's getting better. But then the commercials. (laughs) And he just says, uh, if you think I exaggerate, I only ask you to try it. So collectively, uh, this is brand new FCC chairman, steps up. He's like, let me make my speech. And he uses the phrase vast wasteland. And everyone who was making television kind of like loses their and goes, oh, maybe he's kind of right that everything we're making is terrible and without merit and without redeeming value. And so temporarily inspired, they all scrambled to do better, to make television that somehow could serve the public good. And that was his ultimate point, was that television, because our national airwaves, our national resources, like everything else, should serve the public welfare. Okay. Okay. What year was this, you said? This was 1961. 61, okay. That Newton Minow gave his famous speech. Okay. So in 1963, in response, Total Television made a cartoon for CBS called Tennessee Tuxedo and His Tales. Okay, and this we sounds remember it. not edifying. I know, well, and we remember it not because why? And I want to talk about all the elements of Tennessee Tuxedo. Why don't we think of Tennessee Tuxedo the same way we think of Yogi Bear? Okay. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. I don't, like, maybe I've heard the name in all of my years talking about TV, but I have never heard of Tennessee Tuxedo until now, basically. Come on and see, see, see. Cartoon characters would stick around in people's brains around then. Because I remember my dad, famously in high school, he had a whole Yogi Bear routine for some reason. He and his buddy would do that. It was a picnic basket. Yeah, it was was something about picnic baskets. I don't remember. (laughs) But anyway. The whole thing. All right, so Tennessee Tuxedo and His Tales. It's about a penguin. Okay, so I'm telling... These are all the elements. This should have stuck, right? He's in a zoo, and he tries to escape all the time, sometimes does. He has various schemes to improve his life at the zoo, and so he... He always is in a, the office of the zookeeper, Mr. Livingston, to petition for, like, various things they want at the zoo, okay. which is funny, right? That is funny. And he thinks he's very clever, but he, usually his schemes succeed by accident, right? So this is a great character that we're drawing here. This was also voiced by Don Adams of Get Smart. I love him. Who was doing Get Smart literally at the same time, and he's like, Get Smart is not paying my bills. I need to do a cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of uncanny. He was doing it at the same time? Uh, more or less, oh, yeah, roughly. There was some overlap there. Okay. It's kind of un- uncanny to hear it as an 80s kid who knows and loves Don Adams' voice from Inspector Gadget, right? Uh-huh. So here is Inspector Gadget's voice, a, a voice we know and love coming out of a penguin 
and there's a, you know there's there's all this stuff that should be working here okay and it's also educational i think maybe this is where it had its stumbling block because they were trying so hard to make this stick for the new FCC chairman uh-huh. to get some kudos, I guess, that maybe this is where it fell off, but I don't know. All right, we got a character on this show called Mr. Whoopi, and he's like a, I guess, a professor, although of what, <laughs> I couldn't tell you. Um, he always, in every episode, will explain something on his 3D chalkboard, okay? So they try to, like, introduce educational concepts to the show, and I watched some clips. I saw him do an explanation of why you shouldn't go ice skating on a pond just because it looks frozen. Because okay. he talks about how water ice freezes or whatever. And like the kids in Arizona were like, what? Like, you know, like Yeah, we didn't deal with that either. Not, yeah. yeah, like you you see you always see that and they're like, Don't go ice skating on a pond. It's like I don't think I've never can. seen snow. <laughs> Will didn't see snow till he went to college. Um, but then also I, there was an explanation of deep sea diving that I saw. So it's this kind of a thing, okay? And it was voiced by Larry Storch who was doing his impression of the wizard from the Wizard of Oz. So this is all stuff Uh -uh. that it's like, we could have remembered it, but we just never did. And maybe it was truly because, I don't know, we we talked about one element of of memorability being the, a, a sort of ladder between generations. And maybe that was something that this show lacked. But I also feel like when a show is too didactic or try, or tries Uh to be, I feel like, I don't know, with a, only a few exceptions, I feel like that is always a trying too hard. And kids just won't resonate with it as much as they will other things. You know what? Uh, when you say didactic, I don't think I liked and still don't like when I feel like I'm being talked to in any way, educational or not in the show. I feel like for something to resonate with you, you have to come to it by your own choice in some way, I think. Like you will engage with the story if somebody's trying to give it to you or tell it to you in any way that just doesn't really work, which is just good writing advice. If you were reading a book or something, that is good writing advice. It does seem like they would probably have had a better time if they would have just, I don't know, incorporated that the educational aspect into it a little more naturally with the stories. There were all these elements of something that, that should have been incredibly memorable or at least a cartoon silhouette that we think about today like the Flintstones for example Mm -hmm. I mean you know we still think about the Flintstones we do not think about Tennessee Tuxedo yeah that's like a great premise and I I, he's he's hilarious but this is just uh we're just gonna remember him briefly and uh hopefully uh Mr. Whoopi will come explain something on his 3D chalkboard (laughs) which is now an iPad this show is going to get us those ice skates Number five. Madman, your mission is to eat only multiples of six. When you encounter a number, you will have until the count of three to make your decision. And beware the devious Mr. Glitch. He will eat you if you are wrong. Okay, I think that was a good setup for uh, this one. I'm proud of this one because it's one of my favorite things from anything, even though this character is mostly a mystery. And before I share the name, I'd like you to tell me if you had uh, this same TV experience I'm about to describe. I was looking at the kids show this person was from, and I noticed that all the educational kids shows, especially on PBS, I thought were one show. 
And that's probably because they were made by the same production company, which we now know as the Sesame Workshop. But I couldn't tell where one show began and the other ended. It all looked like a 1981 photo from a school health book. <laughs> yeah, you like, know what I'm saying? Well, yeah, like Sesame Street and Reading Rainbow kind of run together yeah. in your mind. Yeah, all these all these educational things just all look like one long uh, like, animated health book. Yeah, it was like the PBS Cinematic Universe. Where yeah. Like, well, okay, hang on. <laughs> Didn't they have some crossover? I'm sure, first of all, they did have crossover between shows, Because right? the same workshop. Yeah. You know, that probably makes it even more confusing. Yeah. You're probably right. Kids are like, what show am I even watching? Yeah, they probably shot it with the same film, maybe even the same sets. You're probably right, actually. Yeah. So this character is from one of these programs. Um, in the mid-80s, you had shows like 321 Contact oh, yeah. and Sesame Street and a show called Square One. That, yeah, okay. All right. Square one, I thought you could have told me it was just a segment, one of the other shows. Uh, it was created to address the problem of American kids being dumb at math. <laughs> and it was. We're offended, but you're right. <laughs> that's our mission statement. I'm sorry. <laughs> and it was comprised of sketches. Two plus two is one. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, and it was comprised of sketches that parodied pop culture to teach kids mathematics. The one that I remember is called Math Man, which featured my pick, the villainous Mr. Glitch. Okay. I think so. All right, Math Man. Was this the same show that had the man with the in, with the body suit and he would try to tell you about the body? It took us a while. A little uh, bit. I'm can... not sure about that. They had um like a general hospital parody. Okay, um, this is maybe not the same thing. I'm not sure. And I, there's something else that you're going to love that I'm going to tell you okay. about at the end of All this. All right, but we're, math. Okay. we're doing math right now. Yeah, so Math Man was like a fake Pac-Man game. And each sketch had Math Man run this maze on a different math mission. Like, Math Man, only eat fractions that are less than a half. Or, only eat multiples of six. And when Math Man encountered a math problem... He had to make the right guess, or Mr. Glitch would, I guess, kill him. I don't remember, <laughs> but it's yeah. bad. So here's so here's the thing. So here's Mr. Glitch. He is great. He is a tornado with wild, unfocused, googly eyes. And it's he, animated. Yes. Okay, just just make it yes. sure. Because it, it, if it's the mid-80s, it could have been a dude in a suit. So. Yes. Okay. And he makes these unintelligible grumbling sounds like... <laughs> It was, I thought, very scary when I was a kid, but I was also mesmerized. He made me think, he makes me now think of some like mad old man character from a Stephen King story who's crazy, but you don't know why. And he's really scary because you can't. Because he ate all the wrong math problems. Yeah. Like that. made him messed up in the head. And you can't communicate with him because he doesn't, he doesn't speak any language. You he understand. only speaks math and you're not very good at it because you're just a dumb American child. Or a math man. Or Mad Man, and when you, who uh, was the avatar of, yes. of the dumb American children. <laughs> when you encountered him, they played this different scary music that was kind of like um, when you encountered a boss in Mario 2. It just sort of took on a different color, you know, and it was a little scary. It was a good sketch. Math Man says funny stuff while he's pacing the maze like, mm, pretty smart, or mm, think so, you know, things like that. And then Mr. Glitch doesn't say real words. He's like, you can't figure it out. <laughs> and it's real funny. Um, I'm stressed out hearing about this. I feel like I would not have solved the math fast enough, and I would have been very stressed out watching the show. <laughs> I think he, I think Mathman gets unlimited time, but he's very confident, and uh, and uh, Mr. Glitch loves when he messes up. 
So uh, I don't have too much more to say about Mr. Glitch, but I will tell you one thing I saw in Square One that is not really related, but I have to tell you, the musical family, the Judds, make tons of appearances in Square One. Hang on. So first of all, why did you tell me something that was so personally relevant to everything I need to know, which is about (laughs) the Judds? The Judds were on Square One? Yes. Did they do anything with Math Man, or was that not a crossover? Not Math Man, but Math. I found an episode where one of them them is singing a song, and she's quantifying how much a man's heart beats for her. Show me this clip. I heard the word equilateral in there, and they're sing-talking. What day did you find this, and why did you not show me immediately? <laughs> I need to see this. I'm very excited. It's really funny, and they have this, these great shots of like these hopelessly um, 80s sound guys like getting the levels right while they're singing, giving them thumbs-ups and I stuff. I also love that. I love that. I love <laughs> an 80s guy pushing a fader. I love that. That's my favorite thing. So you might be wondering if this plan to make kids smarter actually worked. Well, I saw some YouTube comments from people who used to be kids watching this show. And somebody said, if math man was half the mathematician I am, he wouldn't have been eaten by Mr. Glitch, which is funny. (laughs) And then somebody else says, he doesn't eat three fourths, but two thirds appears in the box at 45 seconds. And someone said that error was fixed in episode 338 of square one TV. So you tell me this doesn't work. So... We have become a generation who is maybe not great at math, but very good at TV remembering. (laughs) So that sounds about right. God bless and you're homesick from school. This is a theme on our show. Uh You turn on daytime TV and see a crowd of children waving the flags of different nations over a bed of cacophonous crowd noises that were definitely not recorded live, but sound like stock sound effects from a football game. Okay. Okay. From a platform, a young blonde woman wearing colorful clothes comes out and sings a song with some enthusiasm (laughs) as a tiger wearing street clothes turns (laughs) backflips. You wonder if you are hallucinating from your fever, but it turns out that you have just stumbled on Shusha, a Brazilian live-action kid show that took the world by storm, but then the world forgot about I remember the commercials for it, and I wanted to see it because it was it's something I'd never seen before. But it also it it it, it seemed as terrible as it sounds. Yeah. Um. So yeah, what we saw in the U.S. was an American version that they actually created specially for the U.S. market. Okay. And it was there was originally it was a Brazilian show, uh, Shuda Shusha, starring TV host 
Shusha Menegale, which ran from 1986 to 1992. So the show was kind of a mashup of like, so it was like a variety show. We said, we'll call it a variety show. Okay. Okay. But it was kind of like a mashup of Bozo the Clown, remember, like with uh-huh. audience participation and Double Dare, because there were like some kid stunts. I saw, I fast forwarded and I saw a kid with a big thing of French fries on his head that he was trying to like hold the French, whatever. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Double Dare. And then. Confusingly, Hee Haw, because there were some lip-synced musical performances from guests like the Olsen twins. Oh, strange. a little after our time because we were not children during the the shusha era however i don't feel like um the memory of the shusha show even though they had some pretty good guests for the american version um and they put like a fair amount of production value into it for the time for what was a dumb kid show uh-huh I, I don't feel like we really think of it very much and she never really got to catch on in the u.s which it's not just like, oh, well, it was this one-off thing. It was this, you know, like no one from another country really breaks through and stays that way. I, I, that's not true, right? Because I feel like there's plenty of international appeal for people you remember and you think of forever. Like the fact that Charo is still uh-huh. someone we know and think of. You know, like it can be done, right? So like what happened with Shusha? Why don't we know and revere and love her when we're talking about... Dunkaroos or whatever the crap it is we're talking about from the 90s. And so I was like, well, let me do some investigation. And it turns out there was a little bit of controversy in the U.S. market. Okay. Which is ridiculous. The trashy tabloid The Globe called her a porn queen because she had been in an erotic crime drama in 1982. (sighs) But I feel like Shusha got done dirty by the American media. And I think this puritanical nation could not handle the fact that a kid's TV host had had topless photos published. Remember, this is right around the time when Vanessa Williams had to give back her Miss America crown because she had taken topless photos before in her life. That is crazy. And that was at a time when, you know, being topless was a crime because how dare you? But, like, I just think it's ridiculous. Also, that's a part of that same, like, moral, mini moral panic that just sort of led to maybe it not catching on. I don't know. Part of the same moral panic was... People were giving um, religious windbag Pat Robertson a hard time over it, not because he was talking about Shusha, but because he was part owner of the company that was responsible for bringing that show, like the uh, MTM, that that company, the production company. And people were like, we see you bringing a porn queen to the airwaves for children, Pat Robinson. You a hypocrite. And so it's like, not only uh, was Yes, she- but not for that reason. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like, why is this the thread that y'all are reporting on? So, like, it was just this baffling mixture of being a little bit weird. Also, just being a little bit... It was very much a solidly 80s concept that couldn't go on in the 90s very long, right? Uh Because, like, once grunge hit, then everything changed, including children's television shows. They were like, 
This is way too upbeat. Now we're all depressed for the next 10 years. But it was it was weird. And it's interesting that I don't think a lot of people in the U.S. remember Shuja. But she has... Um, well, I think she sort of went away for a while. She's retained her fame literally everywhere else. She's got like 11 million followers on Instagram. Oh, really? Because I did look. And I was like, well, what happened? So Shusha walked so JoJo Siwa could run. Oh, I could see that. It's, it was very much the same kind of template. And I just feel like uh, Shusha should be remembered more by American kids. Because y'all remember Barney, but you don't remember Shusha. <laughs> And the tiger that did backflips. <laughs> and I, I saw one of the uh, clips or like uh, um, thumbnail images from our YouTube history. I saw her coming out of a UFO at the beginning. Okay. And that's also great. <laughs> wow. Venus. Oh, we're all done. Well, I'll come back and do more magic next time for you. Number three. Far away in the outermost region of hyperspace, Entrobe and his sidekick, Kid Chaos, await the day they can escape from their intergalactic containment warp and seek revenge on Hyperman. Prospects looked grim until... This one I need to talk about because I'm almost convinced I made it up. Uh, so that, those are the best ones. Before the internet or online distributors, one of the main sources of ephemera was the CD-ROM video game or more generally, PC games. And the 90s were kind of a golden age for that because you could get weird stuff that may or may not take off from uh, PC Magazine. They used to uh, send little um, CDs to like beta test games and stuff. Or in this case, it just came with your old computer. Uh, so around 1995, my family bought our first computer from Radio Shack much like you would buy a couch or bookshelves. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it was a 1995 Aptiva, which came with three operating systems on it. Windows 95, DOS, and OS2 Warp, which left about 80 megs of memory, which was just enough to play all the weird games that came with it. <laughs> Aww. And then, of course, I'm assuming that you took this computer and you put it in, like, a room that everyone in the family had access to, and your mom kind of thought it was ugly but it's like well this is something we need for the you know edification of our family that's right you you bought it like it was furniture and it went in the computer room in an armoire and you, in can, an armoire. And you can pull yes. pull the chair up to it and have computer time mm -hmm. and use the family computer to do uh family activities and, yeah, cause and perhaps supplement your report because you are a privileged child in your public school well i was gonna say like i feel like commercials were always really selling this hard is like you know they're always showing the kids working real hard on their homework it's yes like, this could be your son <laughs> working looking at the encyclopedia he could be a computer genius he could be a computer like he could use the computer to write his report for school exactly and then every parent's like well i want my child to be a genius i tried to teach him math through tv that did not work but now <laughs> he's going to be a genius at computers well that is an interesting point that all the computer stuff around this time had to have uh, a family and educational angle and one of the games that my pick comes from was an educational CD-ROM called Hyperman. And like I said, I almost wasn't sure this exists. It's like that thing about, you know, if a tree falls in the forest, but nobody hears it, did it exist? And this game was so rich and so funny. It just bugs me that you never see it 
acknowledged anywhere else. Yeah, people talk about Oregon Trail until they're blue in the face, but where is Hyperman? <laughs> yes, in the, in the mid-90s, a lot of this gets lost. So the premise is there is this blowhard intergalactic sheriff, Hyperman, and his arch nemesis, Entrobe, who has a sidekick named Kid Chaos, and they escape their space prison because of a mathematical asteroid strike created by a teenage genius on Earth. Entrobe goes to Earth, and the space police chief sends Hyperman to work with a teenage genius to get rid of Entrobe. So this is a lot to to get by. I'm assuming a lot of it is told to you in text. No, uh, they have oh. like a fully voice acted animated cartoon that moves you through the story and then also when you do the point and click stuff in the adventure it's all acted oh okay um and the thing about uh the game is that hyperman is extremely confident and he's a moron and he's got white hair Tennessee tuxedo yes i love those characters um he's got white hair a long chin and old school superhero clothes he's like steve martin if he were a superhero and you have things to do like... I can imagine that. Yeah. Yeah. You look at uh, gross stuff under a microscope or you fix the ecosystem to stop mutant flowers or you properly calibrate a catapult to launch yourself disguised as a three-eyed cow into the castle to stop introbe. Um And it's really funny. There's a great part where the police chief threatens Hyperman. He says, if you don't get this done, I am going to stop your pension, which is a great joke (laughs) uh, for a kid's game. Uh, And it's got great voice acting. The bad guys, Introbe was Frank Welker, who's Megatron and Slimer. Okay. And then uh, Kid Chaos is Maurice LaMarche. Maurice LaMarche, who's Egon. I know Maurice LaMarche. Yes. Um, So according to Lost Media... Uh, they briefly made a TV show about it, but no full episodes exist anywhere. Um, it was just this weird little CD-ROM thing, and it was just a treasure from when computers were furniture and the finite information of the world was held on Incarta Encyclopedia. And a floppy disk could solve or make problems for you. <laughs> That's right. All those CD-ROMs were... It is funny when they, like, kind of coexisted, you know? Because they, they were did. They were for different things. Boy, even when I was in college, they co- coexisted because yeah. we were well into CD storage. But for my classes... You used the floppy disk. Yeah, the accessible storage medium was a floppy disk. And I remember having issues where I've saved too many papers on it, and I'd already walked all the way to the library. I'm like, Jesus. Yeah, you're going to have to delete something from your floppy disk. There was no, like, online storage stuff, except for, like, an FTP server if you were, like, a website guy. Yeah, which most of us were not. <laughs> Precious memories. I remember purchasing, like, a 10-pack of floppy disks from the university bookstore, and I'm sure it was way marked up, and they were like neon god we're old yeah we are so i had old. some i had some like a fire uh like a firebird red colored one and i remember me and you would talk during the summer between college because you got like a metric ton of aol online discs i think yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> i had my pc desktop on the floor in my old we bedroom didn't even have a cell phone when we were dating no, long distance i was broke forever because of phone cards Oh my God. We're so old. Okay, anyway. We love Hyperman. <laughs> Hyperman, I'll get you for this. Yeah, Entrobe's bad, man. Thank you. Number two. Oh! 
At number two, I am angry because I have just now learned about the Groovy Ghoulies. Okay. Okay, this was a filmation series that ran from 1970 to 1971 and whose characters would eventually um, cross over into the Archie Comics cartoon that oh, Filmation also did. Oh, I think that's where that sounds familiar. Yeah, okay. so it might even be a little bit familiar to you. But, okay, here, here are all the reasons why we should really, really know and love the Groovy Ghoulies, but they've fallen by the wayside, okay? So this was also produced by Lou Scheimer, who we know from He-Man. Yes. And everything, you know, everything Filmation did. From Wikipedia, the Ghoulies were a group of hip monsters residing at Horrible Hall, a haunted boarding house for monsters on Horrible Drive. And then many of the characters referred to each other as cousins. This is all like, I'm already like, oh my God, what? This is amazing. <laughs> they're all related. Frankenstein's related to, to Dracula. Yeah, they're cousins, yeah. Obvi- obviously. Okay, so Drac, the short-tempered vampire who's the head of Horrible Hall, and he plays the pipe organ. We got Frankie, an easygoing Frankenstein's monster character. Uh, and he's in charge of the Mausoleum Gymnasium, uh-huh. which is adorable. And he plays the bone xylophone slash drums, as you as you would. And then Wolfie, a hippie werewolf, and he plays like a liar-looking thing. Okay. And they play instruments because they are also a band called the Groovy Ghoulies. I'm l- listening to all these things, and I'm reading this, and I'm like, this is the most amazing thing of my life. How come everyone isn't talking about the Groovy Ghoulies like they're talking about everything else Halloween-related? I want to see a story about how they put the band together, where like the, the werewolf's like playing a little riff, and, and Drax's like, I am hep to that sound. Yeah, like, let me get on my pipe organ and play along with you. <laughs> and um, they look amazing, too. So... It's that really long-limbed, angular 70s style that uh-huh. looks so cool, like those really cool 70s proportions. And so the character design just looked fantastic, too. And it looked exactly perfect, like you would want it to look. Like the Universal Monsters grow up, and they go to the 70s, and now they're in a band. Like, what? How that is, come? That is also the ideal Halloween aesthetic is like 70s Halloween. Yes, and a band, like Monster Mash, you yeah. know? Like the the... Halloween creatures are in a band and we're all here at the concert. And um, reading the entry for Wikipedia too, it seemed like they had a ton of great side characters too. But I guess um, the fatal flaw for me is that the music kind of sucks because (laughs) they do have a song every episode, but they sound very much like the monkeys, but Uh it was like sort of that era. And it sounds like the monkeys. So it doesn't sound like a band with uh, uh, Dracula. It must be the same band that recorded the um, Flintstone Kids music. It could have been. When they, you know, had the, know. the Flintstone Kids where they grew up and like Bam oh, Bam's yeah, on the drums Pebbles and, and Pebbles. Bam Bam, and yeah, they yeah. Were teenagers. It, and it has weird. to be the same band. They're kind of strange. They're real funny. And you'll be glad to know they love you too. So, with that aside, because like, I do think that they could have had some jams and we could have loved it. And. Even the theme song's kind of fun, even though, again, it's like that very, like, even-tempered, terrible rock from the late 60s, early Uh 70s, because this is very early 70s. 
I still don't understand though why we're not up to our butts in groovy gooly Funko Pops. Like why <laughs> did that not catch on? Because it sounds amazing. The premise is amazing. The character design looks great. And it doesn't require more than that to like remember something fondly. Like again, we know Archie Comics, Sabrina the Teenage Witch was also another one of those spinoffs the filmation. Uh-huh. And that's had two more shows. <laughs> what happened to the groovy ghoulies? Where are they? <laughs> so I even went and looked. I was curious. Um, there were only about 100 posts on Instagram since Instagram started that were hashtag groovy ghoulies, okay? Some of them dated back to like 2015, and I didn't see a single post that had more than 75 likes on it. Why is this not a nostalgia bomb? Why don't we love the groovy, groovy ghoulies? Like, I want a shirt with them on it, like right now. <laughs> that would be good. I'm going to look for one. But anyway, why didn't they take off? Was it because their music wasn't good? <laughs> it must be. It's as simple as that. That didn't start the Brady. That didn't stop the Brady Bunch kids from from being popular. It wasn't bad enough to be interesting. Maybe not. And it wasn't good enough to be good. Like the monkeys were good, right? Maybe it just existed in an area that was just not quite good enough. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're about to name our top ephemeral character, but first we have to mention some honorable mentions. Do you have any? I don't. This was a weird one. I didn't. We we talked briefly about maybe the crash test dummies. Um, I, yeah, could, I thought 80s. of a local commercial, but this is a weird one. These I had more things that could be picks, I guess, but no, not really. Yeah, no, not really. Especially because when you start googling things like forgotten characters from the blank, and then it's like the Green Ranger. Like, yeah, no. it's like, it's I like no, that. well, I don't know about you, but I didn't forget any of that, okay? I remembered. <laughs> Y'all are wrong, and your lists are terrible. Okay, but yeah, so, no, so this I didn't is a definitive any. list. It is. We made the list. Okay, you ready for number one? Yeah, I want to hear it. Number one. Hi. Is this my guest? <laughs> I heard you were big time and the old pop is. Well, I'm going to take that as a no comment. So, nitty gritty time. What I'm talking about, and you're not, is that more people prefer the new refreshing taste of Coke over Pepsi. Sweating? It's true. More people are, as we Cokeologists say, catching the wave. Catch it if you can, can. Catch the wave. Coke. Sometimes it's hard to say why something's a number one pick, but this one feels like a number one to me because we almost never think about it and younger people probably won't recognize it, but it was everywhere. It pervaded all media to the extent that nobody was really sure where it came from, even though it was referenced everywhere. And it's a legit cool idea that would work even now, I think. This is the cyberpunk VJ come Coca-Cola spokesman Max Headroom. Oh yeah, he's a good he's a good pick for a number one, right? He's 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 he so rich. He's he's in everything and has like a deep, solid, good foundation. It, he was in everything. He was very much a phenomenon at the time. But we don't really talk about Max Headroom no, so much. No, no. And instead of me launching right into his actual history, I think it'd be really fun to hear someone's natural memory and understanding of what Max Headroom was. So, yeah, talk talk to us about how you recall Max Headroom. So the most memorable in my mind, I think, is we all know that he appeared in Back to the Future Two. Yes. In the eighties cafe. Yeah. Right. So at then when they made that film, they were like, oh, people are going to remember and think about max headroom when they think about the 80s yeah and so 
it was like, and oh. it looks like the future too. So it kind of worked. Yeah. It was a weird futuristic thing. Like he, I, I don't even know where he came from, but it, it's like, it was weird because he was one of those like weird adult things that were like weird, surreal adult Good way humor to explain it. Yeah. Not in like an X-rated way, but you know, just like an adult kind of weird, dry, surreal humor. Exactly. But somehow it wound up being in like, uh, again, everywhere, Coke yeah. commercials or something. Yeah. Or maybe, yes. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and so I think to get at him, we'll start with the service and get to where he comes from because it's really interesting. Um, first of all, you'll want to recall what he looks like. He's got a dark suit with Ray-Ban sunglasses, and he appeared computer-generated. But in the mid-'80s, computers couldn't do that. So actor <laughs> Matt Frewer put in put on latex and foam prosthetic makeup and a fiberglass suit to give himself sort of like um, pixelated or planes on his face. Okay, I didn't know how they achieved that look. Yes, it okay. took four and a half hours. So it was like freaking puppetry and prosthetics. That's yes. so sad. And he said it was like being inside a giant tennis ball. His performance, which you were just talking about, was like a congenial, smooth-talking, wise guy that he based on Ted Baxter from the Mary Tyler Moore show. He was just sort of like... Every voice that anyone does for anything ever is just them doing, doing an impression, impression of something, something else. Yeah, that's a... That, that is like the key of all voice I've acting. heard the um, the guy who does the Krang voice talk about, talk about that. Um, so the thing you'll remember about him is that he glitched when he talked. Yeah, that was his deal. Yeah, he would randomly stutter and modulate the pitch of his voice so it seemed more computery like that. Um, we know him best probably from the new Coke commercials. It wasn't just Coke, it was new oh, Coke. Oh, it was new Coke specifically. And he had the slogan, catch the wave. You remember that? Catch and the then, wave. And then we never did catch the wave. It seemed, he seemed cool. Because of his history, it, it evoked kind of a cyberpunk thing, which is exactly where he came from. He was actually a British creation. There was originally a British TV movie called Max Headroom, 20 Minutes into the Future, that aired in 1985, and it was hugely popular. And they have three or four seasons of a TV spinoff. And also he did, like, VJ interstitial things for um, music video clip shows, kind of like Beavis and Butthead. Okay. And he would, it was this really dry thing. Uh, it was this really dry humor. Great. Didn't it? And then you're like, what does that mean? And people loved it. I'm I'm glad hearing that he has, he has British origins because I do think that explains that how in my mind I had it categorized as being dry. Yes. You know, like, yes. or it's not like the over the top ridiculous, you know, give him a surfboard. Now he's American. It wasn't like that. Like that, it was that's weird. right. He, he won a bat. They won a BAFTA award for the, for the pilot. And then in the U S he got a series briefly in 87 and 88, but it didn't, um, didn't stick around, but we just, <laughs> Max Headroom was out of the TV and into the kitchen <laughs> with his wife. And there's an alien from Melmac and he's there too. And it's also Elf. Like that's the whole, <laughs> like the whole show is all of that. Yeah. That's what it would have been like. He was so popular that even in the middle of the new Coke commercials, they would also try to, by the way, sell you Max Headroom t-shirts in the same commercial. So he, I mean, he was that big. And they're like, we sold out of the t-shirts, but the new Coke, no. <laughs> when we uh, are thinking about his legacy, they tried to make a movie called Max Headroom for President that didn't get picked up. His last appearance was, um, for ads for Channel 4 in Britain in 2007 to talk about the digital switchover, which was kind of a cute idea. Um, and you mentioned Back to the Future Part 2, where there was um, 
like the the Ronald Reagan talking head that was done in the same style, and also uh-huh. a Michael Jackson and an Ayatollah Khomeini done in the same Max oh, Headroom okay, style. Right. Yeah. Um, and he gets referenced in modern music videos and and movies as like a winky thing for people who know what that is. Uh, he's probably better remembered in the UK, I would guess. I'm not maybe sure. Maybe so. Maybe I'm not so. Sure, yeah. Um, and then finally, uh, just to illustrate how popular he was. I was reading on his Wikipedia article that there was a TV hijacking of Chicago TV stations in November of 1987. Uh, This was a real thing. You may remember from the movie Hackers, and they did that. Apparently, this was a thing you could do. Um, The first one happened for, first hijacking happened for 25 seconds during the 9 p.m. news broadcast um, and the second, two hours later for 90 seconds, during a PBS broadcast of Doctor Who, the hacker referenced Max Headroom's Coca-Cola commercial, and he had the corrugated background in the background, just like Max Headroom. And in the end, he exposed his bottom and had somebody spank him with a fly swatter. <laughs> so they never found who it was. You get 25 seconds. What are you going to do? That's exactly, yeah. He packed a lot in there. <laughs> like, I'm going to make a Max Headroom joke and fly swatter. <laughs> So Max Headroom absolutely should have stuck around, I think, because it, it was just a very cool, very strange thing. It very was, of its time, so much so that... that, that like, we didn't know how to hold on to it, maybe. Maybe I mean, so. It's, 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 it's very strange, but it's a legitimate piece of culture, and it w- was critically acclaimed at one time, too. And I, I, th- I think it was just a really, really cool piece of media ephemera. That's true. You heard it here first. Cut the way. Okay, I don't know if we came to any dramatic conclusions about ephemera today, but it's still fun to talk about. Yeah, I like what you said about how uh, certain things uh, making the cut from generation to generation. And I'm thinking there may be something uh, to do with you're needing some kind of good balance between something familiar people can hook into, but something um, very resonant now that makes it interesting. And you have to have that calibrated the right way for that to make that cut to the next generation, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, maybe that's my so. That's my glib uh, ass- assessment of that. But I think I, that's a good assessment. I, I love, I love uh, disposable garbage, stuff like that. That's actually real culture. I think that's really cool. Uh, if you have thoughts on this list or your own suggestions, email rumors at thewizardsnightshirt.com or talk to us on social media. Rebecca, where can people follow us? You can find us on Twitter at WizardsNSPod. Or you can visit thewizardsnightshirt.com to find out about this show and our other shows, like Curdle Holler, our original Halloween comedy series, as well as a complete archive of our Masters of the Universe review show. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week when we call forth new champions. The legends they tell of a hero Facing down fears and cutting down foes There's no resemblance to what you know When your own deeds feel humble and